Good morning, Church of the City. I'm Dave Martinen, one of the elders of Church of the City, and um, given the privilege this morning of being able to teach you the second beatitude that is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Let me read that and then I'll just lead us again in prayer. This is the second beatitude from the New uh, Living Translation. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts today will lead us into a deeper understanding of what you want us to know, that you would lead us by your spirit, that you would teach us by his illumination and insight and inspiration so that we are more fully formed into your likeness and more fully prepared to walk with you into the depths of life is where you want to take us so that in the end, Father, we would know you better, love you more deeply, walk with you more openly and with a greater sense of the fullness of our salvation, both now and what waits for us in the future. And we pray this for your glory and we ask it for our good in Jesus' name, amen. When we read a sentence like this from Jesus, it's designed by the teacher the Lord himself to provoke us. Uh, how is it possible, we should ask, that we should find blessing in mourning, that we should enter into grief and unpack that grief and find that God is there meeting us and leading us to a greater understanding of his purpose and plan in our life? It's a paradox. Why would God want us to be in mourning? And why would he want us to consider ourselves benefited through that experience? It doesn't initially on the surface make sense, and it shouldn't. It's provocative. It's inviting us to go deeper. Sadness, like any of our emotions, by the way which are a part of our formation in the likeness and image of God himself, for our God also has mind, will, emotion, demonstrates those throughout the scriptures and made us to have those. They're a gift from him. So when we read about sadness, which is the precursor, what we feel that leads us into mourning, our question should be is, what is he talking about? Because not all sadness leads to mourning. It comes in various degrees. Sadness, like any of our emotions, leads us to a place of being able to feel whether it's disappointment or frustration or fear. But most likely that the forms of sadness that lead us into mourning are forms of loss. Uh, they fit in a category that reminds us of how life is passing and how things don't work out the way we want. And it's how we feel about those losses and how we talk to ourselves about those losses that really bring us into a deeper experience of mourning. As examples, loss can be any of these things, real or perceived, as in the loss of something in the future or a hope or a plan or a promise that is not fulfilled. The death of a dream, for example, can lead us into deep sadness. Or it could be the loss of a job or the loss of a benefit. Many people around us are really struggling with the uncertainty of their future, given what COVID is doing to us. Or it could be the loss of a relationship, like the death of a relative, or a spouse, or a child, or a friend, or even a pet. And we are just so deeply saddened by that loss. Or it could be the loss of a freedom, 
even as we have in COVID again, we feel ourselves to be restricted and isolated in ways that we're not choosing. It's sort of forced on us and that in and itself, that kind of restriction brings a kind of sadness or a malaise into our life. And the resulting isolations that it creates have made us sad in various ways and to various degrees. It could be the loss of a romantic relationship that really kind of fits not only what's here and now, but the future of where we anticipate that going. So it could be that we have something that we're reasonably hoping for, and that hope is dashed. Something like the hope of a promotion, or a vacation, or an advancement, or an income, things of that nature. All of these things will cause us to be to be sad. And the experience of sorrow and that sadness, depending on its degree and how it's affecting us, would lead us into mourning, which is to express that deep sorrow, to express that sadness, that disappointment, that distress, uh, that, that despair that can even come as part of the emotional pain. So when we have these physical, social, emotional, and spiritual outcomes to the sadness that we feel, not all of which are good things, how would we then benefit them in any sense by God's design to be beneficial? So how is it that Jesus says to us that in the face of sadness or mourning, uh, we are going to be comforted? How is it that God is going to bless those who mourn and guarantee their comfort? Can it mean that God intends to use our experience of mourning to a different outcome than what we might have experienced or chosen to experience in life before we met him? Maybe we were taught or observed in our culture or family of origin patterns of grief that don't actually lead us into the presence of God, but lead us to run away from him. So the answer is, yes, God has an intention that's different than how we would process sor sorrow from the perspective of the world experiencing sorrow. God has a plan for us in sorrow and in mourning. And this is the paradox that is found in Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus says to us as his listeners, blessed are those who mourn. He is preparing for us the burden of the friendship that we're going to have with him. Let me explain what I mean by this. See, ahead of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when G Judas had left uh, that upper room and the, the final meal Jesus was having with his disciples, Jesus not only led them in that meal, but he also brought them into a deeper understanding of his teaching, sort of his last words to that chosen group of men, those 11 that were remaining. And one of the sentences that he says in John chapter 15, at verse 15, is this, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I've told you everything that the Father has told me. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to hold back. And this is actually how friends behave with each other, isn't it? Jesus is preparing us to enter into a relationship where we really know the mind and heart of God. Jesus says, in effect, I'm gonna give you full disclosure 
of everything that I know that the Father has told me and lead you into a deeper understanding of his purpose and his plan. I'm going to tell you what's on my heart. I'm going to tell you what's on my mind, what affects me, what my Father cares about, even what it is that breaks and burdens the heart of God himself. And friends do this to each other, don't we? To many around us who ask, how's it going? We'll probably say, well, fine, particularly if we're not rather deep in our friendship or relationship with that person. Uh, some other kind of banal generality because we don't really know them well enough to unburden and share the depths of our hearts with them. But with our friends, we drop our guard. We go deeper into what we're wrestling with, what we're thinking about, what's bothering us, and maybe even what we're enjoying and celebrating. We'll share all of those things with our friends. And Jesus is doing this with us. He's preparing us for the fact that he is going to fully disclose all of this to us as his followers. And there are at least two categories of sorrow and mourning that will impact us as God shares himself with us. And the first is the form of mourning that is the impact of internal sorrow that leads us to mourn ourselves in God's presence. Now that sounds upside down, but it really will be the experience of those who follow Jesus with the intent of being mature as his followers and growing in the knowledge of the grace we have in Christ. You see, it's when we see ourselves as God sees us, when we see ourselves mirrored in his heart and understand what our true nature is, the depths of our own brokenness, we are going to mourn over our very being, our very nature, our behavior, our actions. Because we will see ourselves as deeply broken and beyond repair and that we cannot make any effort in terms of self-improvement or self-refinement that will change what our nature really is in the eyes of God. There's no self-help that we can take that would affect what we really are like in the eyes of God. Now, one of the examples of this is found uh, in the life of a prophet, Isaiah, in the Old Testament, in the book that bears his name. And in chapter 6 of, of the book of Isaiah, God gives his prophet Isaiah a glimpse of his glory, of his true nature and splendor when he's in the great temple of Solomon back in that day. Listen to these words. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, which are kinds of angels, were standing above him, each having two wings, with two each covered his face, and with two they covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, the thresholds of the temple trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the glory of heaven's armies. As God gives us a glimpse of his nature and power, we learn in this passage that a right response to the glory of God is inward devastation. 
Because what happens is when we see fully a revelation of his glory, we suddenly realize how unsuited we are to see it, how unsuited we are to be in its presence, how unfit we are to be anywhere close to him, and it's devastating. Now, it's not the only response that we see within scripture to the glory of God or the response of every glimpse of God's glory that we have, but it is an essential one. There are times when we will experience in the presence of God the devastation of our inadequacy and of the great distance between his nature and ours, between his glory and our weakness, our baseness, our sinfulness. In essence, that that is what Isaiah is telling us. The vision actually informed him of how far away he was from God, how far away he was from his goodness and his glory and his greatness and his purity and his holiness, and how he could never do anything to change his state. He was devastated by the experience because in the presence of this God, he was without hope and without help to change his condition. And he actually says that to God. He says, it's all over. I'm done. I'm just a liar and I live among liars. Nobody here speaks the truth. We're all consumed with lies, patting ourselves on the back, trying to make each other better than we are, telling each other things that aren't true. And now I see it clearly. He's undone. It's as if somebody has untied the rope of his being and he's just falling into a puddle, a mess. The morning of our internal condition will affect us during our conversion and well after it. There are going to be these times where in the presence of God, we revisit our weakness. We see our fatal flaws or our flaws as being fatal. And we wonder, God, how can you love me? A sinner, condemned, unclean, unworthy. And it will lead us to really deep sadness over our condition. But God doesn't leave us there perpetually. Because this is what God does for Isaiah as part of that same vision. Listen to these words. Then one of the seraphim that was crying out God's holiness, one of those three went down, flew to me with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and he said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. I, Isaiah experiences the miraculous and incredible intervention of God. God does for him through this ministering servant, the angel, what he cannot do for himself. If he were to go over to an altar designed for the worship of God and entering into God in the presence when we know we've broken the law, we've broken God's expectation, we've disappointed him with our efforts and we cannot change or improve our being. If we were to go and take an a coal and burn our mouth, you could imagine what the outcome of that would be. Permanent damage, and we would add injury to that horrific experience of devastation that we're already experiencing. But this is the work of God that makes the difference. Isaiah's experience is a picture of salvation 
the severe mercy that brought this to Isaiah to his devastation also works to atone for his sin and, it remo- and he removes it. This is what Jesus does for us. Jesus, his death and his, his, uh, the end of his life was to atone, to justify, to bring us who have no status with God into sonship and to change our identity from sinner to saint, from darkness to light, from lost to being found. All of those things are true in Jesus. But what it means is that Jesus fully paid for our offenses. As it's written in the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life, Jesus gave up that all for us. And that in itself should wreck us. That it cost Jesus all of that to redeem us, and that he was willing at his own cost to be our redeemer. In moments like this, when we respond to the word of God, it is with a deeper understanding and and deeper appreciation for the mercy that God has for us when there is no worthy thing within us. There's nothing that attracts us to him. There's nothing that we can do that would commend us. There's no promise that we could make that would ever appeal to him. He doesn't do it because of us. He, He does it out of his own nature, his own goodness. In moments of clarity, when I have a fresh awakening of God's glory, I know that in my past, I've thought that through. When I'm so convicted by comparison to God of my own sinfulness and my own unworthiness, my abject brokenness, I've cried out, God, aren't you tired of me? Because honestly, I'm tired of myself. I should be better than what I am. I should be more improved. And it is not a call for us to work harder. It is a call for the grace of God to go deeper in our life, to affect those places that we've sealed off or those places that we think that we've hidden or those places that we're covering and attempting to distract from God as if he doesn't know. And what we really say is, here's my heart. Would you keep doing the work that only you can do? Would you seal my heart for yourself? Would you make me more fully yours? And then what we find is that God himself is the one who comforts us. He leads us then into that experience of mourning, not to leave us there, and not because he, he's taking some advantage or gloating about his superiority on our inferiority. That's not his nature. It's not his likeness. But what he does is he takes us there so that we can think through who we are realistically, reasonably, logically, emotionally, physically, and understand how great his mercy really is. And when we do, as we do, we find he doesn't reject us. He renews us, encourages us, receives us, and that gives us wave after wave of comfort. Now, there's a second kind of mourning that will affect us in the company of Jesus. 
And this second mourning is the impact of external mourning or our mourning on external brokenness, things around us that impact and affect us in the presence of God, particularly as we understand what God says about those things and what God thinks about those things. In other words, when we see the brokenness in the world, when we see man's inhumanity towards his fellow man, when we see how rotten and awful and tumbled and broken things are, we want the world to be better. We want it to fit God's design. We want it to fit his purpose. Now, an example of this is from the life of God's reformer and restorer in the Old Testament by the name of Nehemiah, a man who wrote a book and it bears his own name. And in that book, he tells the story of his calling to rebuild Jerusalem. This was after the exile when Jerusalem had been broken by the Babylonian army and exiles had been carried as captives into their own country as slaves and made to work for the new empire. And they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they burnt its gates, they made it a rubble, they broke its walls. And Nehemiah was doing well. He was a cupbearer to the king of the Babylonians at that point, the Assyrians, those successive empires. And he was in the fortress of Susa in the, in the employ of the king. He was obviously a slave and belonged to him. But, but this is what he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some of the other men who had just arrived back from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity, the first wave of going back to Jerusalem, and how it was going for them. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, now listen how Nehemiah responds to this news. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, you read how he identified with the brokenness of the people. He wasn't personally responsible, but he realized it was because of him and people just like him that they were in the mess, and God had every right to judge them as he did. He agreed with God's justice and judgment. And then he just ached for the broken state of the city and prayed for them. When he heard it, it wrecked him. He was in mourning day after day after day. He stopped eating. He gave himself to prayer. He thought about what his responsibility should be to this. And in this category, of sorrow and mourning. As we walk with Jesus, we're going to feel what he feels about our world. We're going to feel what Jesus feels about people around us. And honestly, it should wreck us. We'll cry out to God and we might say to him, somebody should do something about this. Why is this the way it is? And it will bother us when we see the suffering of others, when we see the brokenness of others, when we see the injustice that's around us and we think, this is wrong. And we may even start with God. And that might be the cry of our heart where we're just saying to him, this is so wrong. You need to do something about this. And like Nehemiah, we might in those moments conclude, 
Lord, you've let me see this. Lord, you've let me feel this. So Lord, what do you want me to do about this? It's frequently burdens like this that propel us into service for God. We consider and ask the question before God, well, if it's not me, then who's it going to be? And if it's not now, then when is this going to happen? And we feel that we have shared this burden with God and we want to see the rule and reign of God and his kingdom come into this earth right now. And we believe if we do at least this much, we will be honoring God by the work we do. And we pray and we seek his face and the answer to the great need to do something often burdens us to get involved, to make a difference, to show the light of the world into this dark place. Mourning then, in the first place, is caused by that internal uh, disalignment or misalignment between God and ourselves. It's over our personal sin, our own, our own failure, And as we desire to be a better person, to be holy, to be set apart for God's intended purpose, we will find that he will renew that hopefulness within us, that we belong to him, that we are his children, that we're called into relationship with him and will begin to see the world through fresh eyes, through his perspective, through his view. And when we're renewed in our commitment by seeing his greatness after having mourned our sinfulness, it renews our willingness to walk in the light as he is in the light, to let go of those things that have pulled us back or that we've hidden or failed to confess or failed to deal with or failed to surrender. And we renew ourselves in God's presence. And we find incredible comfort in that decision. He is the light. We don't purify ourselves because we want him to love us more. We realize how extravagant the love is that he's given us and what he's really called us to. And we enjoy that. And we are then renewed in the purpose that if he's called us, if he's redeemed us, then we need to love him back and love him more. Mourning in this second place that is caused by the external brokenness around us is when we see God's design for men in our world trampled and wrecked by the state of things. And it might not be that we could change the big things that we think we need to, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pledge ourselves, our resources, our strength, or our time, or our willingness to work for change in a place we really see that it's needed and where we personally can make a difference. That's really what our missions are in Church of the City. We want to let people see who God is by how he's changed us and how we're able to use our time, our talent, our resource, our energy, our willingness to be able to serve those who really have need of it. And in that process, we find God's comfort we find two things. We find that we don't have to stay where we were and we don't have to leave the world where it is. And then there is this great promise he introduces it to that one day he is going to make everything right. One day all the world will be at the feet of Jesus. One day he will create a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And we're hungry for that. 
Sometimes we're hungry for it just because we're tired of the way things are. But we ought to be hungry for it because it is the new world that God has always designed and wanted us to experience. And one day through the grace of Jesus, he will weave together the brokenness of the universe. He will dispel its darkness and its evil forever. He will push sinfulness out of the equation and we will experience the fullness of, of our salvation. That is our hope in fulfillment in the future. So internally, we anticipate this to mean God has removed our sin and changed our identity, and God will, by his grace and mercy, forever remove the weakness that still inhabits our old nature. It'll be done. It'll be forgotten. It'll put behind him, and we will live with him as our father, and we his children forever. And externally, we understand this to mean God's remaking the world. But in the meantime, we're going to work for justice because God's heart is for justice. And God demonstrates justice and mercy in the person of his son, where he would be justified in just ending the earth. But rather than in mercy, he pays the price that we could not pay so that we could be his forever family. And it leads us to worship him. It leads us to honor him. It leads us to praise him and talk about him everywhere we can because we can say, no one is like you. There is no one whose design is to lead us into mourning so that we would be able to experience the greatest comfort that eludes us in every other place. God, you're amazing, and we worship you. Now, let me give you this final uh, encouragement, because the scripture says, now unto him who is to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be honor and glory, dominion and power, now and forever. Amen.